Hello and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits. Joining me today is Anthony A. Dix Jr. to talk about how to develop leaders in a tech world. Anthony, welcome to the show. Alex, it's good to see you. Good to be with you. We're really good to hear you. It's good to be on the podcast. Thank you so very much for uh, inviting me and I'm looking forward to an engaging conversation. Absolutely. We've had quite a few pleasant and laughing moments uh, in the pre-show, so this should be fun. Um, but before we get started, for those members or those uh, listeners who have not heard of you before, could you give your superhero origin story? Wow. Well, first and foremost, thank you for thinking that I'm a superhero. That's pretty good. I um, My superhero origin story, it kind of starts from not necessarily birth. I'm not like Superman. I, I didn't come from the planet Krypton, anything like that. But I was born into a house of leaders. My dad is a pastor and a business owner. And my mom is an educator. So I was born into a house of leaders and was often put into leadership contexts and expected to lead. And fortunately for me, uh, my parents as an educator and an ecclesial leader, church leader and a business leader, they took great pains to equip me to lead. And so that was my first exposure to leadership. That's how it all got started from doing speeches on stages in the eighth grade, from memorizing the I have a dream speech and having to recite it from memory at church like that. I've always been in leadership positions and that's kind of how it started. And if it if you were to ask me, and I know you did, but you, you asked my superhero backstory where you can't be a superhero without superpowers. So my superpower would be equipping leaders, really because that's how I was raised. I was I was equipped to lead, and I feel like I have a responsibility to pay it forward and equip others to do the same. Awesome. And that was actually my my next question is why why leaders? What was it about leaders that you wanted to help and guide? and focus your attention on in terms of your career? Well, I believe that leadership is fundamentally a responsibility given to other people to, and by others, I mean, it's given to a person. Like leadership is not something that you are necessarily born with the responsibility to lead. It's given to others to protect and promote the flourishing of others. So leadership is a responsibility that I have to protect and promote the flourishing of others. And so often, Leaders have to lead people who evolve, but don't always evolve in their leadership. And so my career has been based on helping leaders evolve as leaders intentionally, just as intentionally as they are with product development, donor development, just as intentionally as they are with program development. They need to be intentional about developing themselves as leaders, not just professionally to do a good job, but to bring the best out of people to promote and, and protect their flourishing. Because I truly believe that leaders don't grow by accident. They must be engineered because we engineer our organizations, we engineer our programs, we engineer tech, but we don't do a good job at engineering our leadership. And so that's kind of the impetus behind why I do what I do. I just think leaders are the most interesting people in the world. I love them and I'd love to see them flourish. I see some parallels between this and um, any almost any other skill. Like you can be a, let's take the pianist, for example, totally off topic. But the idea is certain people are genetically born with certain dispositions to be an mm -hmm. excellent pianist. And they might have 
that ability to excel quicker than everyone else does, mm. but everyone can learn to play the piano. You might not be mm. you know, Mozart, but you will have a certain level and you, you kind of have to go through that process and train yourself to become uh, a decent, at least, pianist. So it sounds like mm. leaders are in the same way. It's a skill that you can learn. Maybe some other people might be have a stronger character or be more charismatic mm. to help them guide in that process, but it's something that everyone can learn. Would you agree with that assessment? I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, coming from a recovering pianist who failed at learning how to play the piano, like my mom and dad tried to get me to learn how to play, play it, but it never really took hold. So I definitely had the ability, but I just, I just didn't want to invest in, in that way. And I think when it comes to leadership, everyone is born with the capacity to lead because any human can be responsible for the promotion and the protection of someone else's flourishing. We're all born with that capacity, but we don't all take on to it at the same way. Um, and the capacity of each person might differ according to degrees. But if you put the effort in, you you can be like they say that Michael Jordan, if you looked at his parents, he weren't he wasn't born to be tall. He just got tall and he dedicated himself to learn how to be the great, in my opinion, the greatest basketball player of all time. So it's not just innate talent, but it is also a dedication to work at it that really, really contributes to your ability to develop. And in the space of technology, because we're talking about today, at least because there's a lot we could talk about in terms of leadership, but in the space of, or the Venn diagram of leadership and in the tech world, I'm curious if you could paint a picture of what the current landscape looks like for leaders in a tech space in, of course, also the nonprofit sector? So given the technology age, like we're just living with so much technology, that one picture that comes to mind, and give me, is, I thought about this a little bit, it's like having a, a box of Legos and you just, there was a picture on the box for the Legos, you pour it all out, you take away the manual, for the Legos and you throw away the box and ask somebody to build it. So at that point, like you get all of these pieces, but you don't necessarily know how they go together. And you, the, what you're supposed to be building is still yet a mystery. I kind of get this, this illustration from something that, that Malcolm Gladwell mentioned in uh, a talk he gave at the world government summit in 2018. A, a piece of it is on YouTube and it's just extremely intriguing. He said, that in the days before technology began to be so essential to life, um, in the digital technology, we were living in an age of puzzles. He said, now we're living in an age of mystery. And the challenge of a puzzle is you don't have enough information. The challenge of a mystery is you have too much information. And so the leadership landscape is a complexity of all of these challenges where we have so many messages thrown at us, so much information and trying to cipher through all of this data to determine meaning, what, what we can use, what should be used. It's kind of like not having puzzle pieces, because even if you have puzzle pieces, you know how they fit together. And there's a picture on the other side to tell you whether these two pieces fit. But when it's a box of Legos, like you got so many people, I don't know how these things go together. It's kind of like a mystery. And to me, that that's what leadership is like in a technological age. To expand on this Lego analogy, which I, I love, 
I use it actually in an, even in a Salesforce context to be more technical or to at least to explain the technical elements of it. What are you trying to build with a Lego set? I mean, so you have all these pieces. Like, what is the goal? Are you trying to replicate what you think you remember of the image? Are you trying to build something brand new, something in between, something like what is the goal of having that Lego set and, and what are you trying to build with it? Yeah, to see like if if you have the Lego set and you get a picture, well, the picture is if they take the box away, you only have a mental picture. So what is a mental picture? It's vision. So you've got this vision, regardless of how you remember what the image was on the box, you've got a vision, but you got all of these pieces and you're trying to put this vision together. And <laughs> when you're a leader, you have other things. It's not like you're creating this Lego uh, vision, this vision for this Lego box or this Lego structure without pressures around you. <laughs> you're doing all of this under pressure. And so you've got this mental picture. You got all of these pieces. Let's call them like you, you've got donors. You've got uh, staff. You've got programming. You're trying to figure out how to get all of these things together so that it actually looks like what you saw in your mind, but you're doing this under, uh, under pressure, the pressure of a lack of resources, the pressure of, you know, you may not be able to get as much staff as you like, or you don't know how certain pieces fit together. I like Legos. So. I know that in a Lego box, I can find a piece that fits to another piece and it doesn't go where I think it should go. Like this is a duplication. Like this is not, this piece doesn't go here. It fits. It, it seems like it fits or there's some that's real close and I have to force it to fit. And then I get later on in the project and realize now I got to destroy all the stuff that I built on this thing because it really doesn't fit. And I, that's kind of how, how, how it looks to me in my mind. Shifting then from the puzzle, the Lego, to the mystery, because too much information, I totally agree. Uh, one of the attributes for being a, a Salesforce consultant, actually, is being an aggregator of information, of digesting mm -hmm. all or as many resources as possible, yeah. and then giving a nice, concise view or description or explanation of certain points that are rest, you know, important and necessary for the moment. It sounds like leaders have to do the same kind of process, but what would be their feed? Like what, what sources of information would a typical leader try to aim towards to be able to start that funnel process to digest and then consolidate? So leaders are processing a ton of information. I, I think leaders are almost like um, quarterbacks. Like you're on, a, on the field as quarterback. Quarterback is, they got to know the offense, each position on offense. They know the defense. And they're doing this amongst a crowd and they're being screamed at from the sidelines like that. That's kind of how leadership leadership is. And determining this is how the mystery kind of evolves. Like with a Lego set, the Lego pieces don't have behavior. They're just there. But in a game, you've got as a quarterback, you've got these other beings with behaviors. And so leaders have to learn people, their behaviors, their personalities, their their uh, predilections, their proclivities, their idiosyncrasies, so to speak. And there's data to collect for that. Like you got disc assessments, you've got Enneagrams, you've got a whole host of other things. And people are bringing those things to work. But you've also got to understand the organization's culture and the organizational culture that you inherited, the one that you are developing and the one you plan to leave to the leader that comes behind you. And so you're analyzing not only behavioral metrics, but organizational metrics, um, KPIs, and, and other things to, to manage an organization's viability, their mission, 
And you have to develop, and I think this is one of the more important things for leaders, a, a robust filter, right? You need a robust filter. Um, one way to filter this information quite practically is with a dashboard. I'm no engineer, so I didn't make the dashboard in my car. Another engineer made that. There, there's someone who made all of the intricacies of the computing and the computation of data that goes into oil pressure and tire pressure to give me the warning lights and all the rest of that stuff. And another electrical engineer that did that. It's my responsibility as a driver of the car not to be the engineer, but to be able to read the dashboard. And leaders have to have people on their team who can give them that type of data in such a way that they present it through a dashboard so they can maintain their ability to drive and make adjustments and things of that nature. And I know I'm giving a lot of different analogies, but I think that helps to paint a picture so people kind of get it so that they understand that, that leadership is not alien. Like you're doing it just like you're driving a car. It's just that we have different tools to help us to help us do what we do. I love the analogies. Let's not slow down. If you want to throw in some Marvel references in there, happy to do okay. it. <laughs> oh, cool. That's good. That's good. My man, I like Marvel too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, dashboard. I agree. Especially, it helps them. That's a really good analogy, actually, because uh, it's often that uh, leaders do get access to dashboards. They don't need to know the individual mechanisms, what they're doing. They just need to know a summary view of of what's happening, and then be able to communicate that outward, and then make decisions and predictions from that. So, mm-hmm. but it it kind of conflicts with the idea of getting access to a lot of information and then digesting it themselves versus. Other people consolidating the data, presenting it to a leader, and then the leader makes choices. So where mm-hmm. would you see the responsibility lie? Are they really the ones that just take the dashboard and then decide what to do next? Or do they should they have access to the source information to decide what should be on that dashboard? Okay, so I'll give you this example. One, one day, and this, I don't want to give slight to any brand, but one day I had the opportunity to drive like a brand new Escalade, Okay. Brand new Escalade. I've been driving since I was 15 years old. So I came up with, you know, a different type of dashboard, like the technology that that goes into the cars now. I just didn't have that. So I get in there and um, some driving decisions that I was making, the default settings on the Escalade, it didn't like it. Like it, it, it didn't like me, you know, maybe veering a little too far to the right, or it, it, it couldn't tell what adjustments needed to make be made real time in driving. So my seat was buzzing, Alex. It was doing all other, I was getting kind of warning lights. And I'm like, I don't, I don't need these. I don't drive like these. So the engineer decided what they thought would be important to the driver. But the driver still has to say, you know what? That's not necessarily important to me. That's too much information. I need to cut that off. And so leaders when they're getting these reports, their reports are coming from people who say, well, I think you should know this. But the leader still has to exercise their judgment, even in a mystery to say, that's a piece of information that I don't necessarily need to know for this problem in this context. I hope, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I love it. Makes total sense to me. So changing gears slightly, I'm curious to know, we talked about Puzzles in the past, not enough information, moving toward mystery, which is too much information. What about the flip side of that? Are there any things that were easier in the past that are harder today or more complex or more challenging or something in that in the negative space? Definitely more complex. Timothy, I think his last name is Elmore, wrote a book called The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership. And 
in the introduction to that book, he talks about the difference between a problem that's complicated and a problem that's complex. And basically, a complicated problem is a problem that's difficult to figure out, but it doesn't change over time. The problem doesn't evolve, right? As a former math teacher, if I put on the board uh, the fundamental theorem of calculus, well, that's been the fundamental theorem of calculus for a minute. If you can't figure it out, it's because it's complicated, but that problem is not going to change, right? But in the current day and age, we have complex problems and a complex problem is a problem that continues to evolve. Like COVID-19 was complex, because it continued to evolve into other strains and all other types of stuff. And so I think what was easier in the past where we may have been dealing with complicated challenges, complicated issues, complicated problems. If you didn't have a virtual workplace, then managing people in a virtual workplace is going to be more complex, even though in the past, managing people, period, was just complicated. And so in the past, managing people may have been a little bit easier than it is now because the way we work has changed and the people doing the work have evolved as well. Think about it, Alice, like 20 years ago, what weren't we doing? Uh, Internet. (laughs) Right. Like I was, I was thinking about this. I was telling, I was telling somebody the other day that we are closer and closer to living in an age where there are more people on the planet who know what it's like to live with the internet than were born without it. And so that is going to present some unique nuances as to how we lead, how we lead people. And um, I think one of the things that is harder is authentic connection. That's, that might be a little bit harder now uh, in the workplace, authentic connection. One of the things that is easier in this day and age is disruption because something that happened and a, another all the way across the world affected the entire globe in less than a quarter and had us changing the way we work, changing the way we shop. And now is that change has, has gone to where going back to normal is not normal. We, we're living in a new normal now. And so that kind of stuff is, is more is more easy or easier uh, than it has been in the past. Managing people remotely, that's interesting because that's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, being a digital nomad. And I'm advocating for a, at least a hybrid, but at least allowing employees to work more remotely when it makes sense to do so and empowering them and having the trust that they'll do the proper work. Now, you mentioned that it was complicated in the past to manage people when they were on site and it's complex to manage, manage them remotely. Would you say that it's both complicated and complex today to manage hybrid workers or remote workers? Oh, definitely, definitely for for a myriad of different reasons. But but you you really articulated one of them. Like one of the challenges is just trust. So to me, if if you're going to build a hybrid model, if you got a vision to build a hybrid model, you also have to have a culture to support it. If there's no culture of trust, then that culture of suspicion is going to eat a hybrid culture for lunch because you can't manage people if you are suspicious about whether or not they're at their desk when they're at home, whether they are producing, whether they are working for you and somebody else. 
we've given people all of these tools to increase their capacity and their production. But if we don't trust them to use those tools in a way that's going to help our organization, what we fundamentally believe about people is going to eat away at the culture we desire to desire to, to develop. And so trust is a big thing because along with trust comes commitment to build a strong virtual culture in a hybrid space. It takes a strong commitment to build it and to the people that you employ in that context. And it's going to take compassion too. Because you're pioneering in this space. It's not like you're getting a handbook of how to do it. <laughs> like nobody really knows. And because people are continuing to evolve, what people think they need is evolving. They're, we're using terms now that we weren't using 20 years ago, 25 years ago, for sure. Who I don't remember 25 years ago, people talking about work-life balance. But now we're talking about those. And so the, the, the workforce in, in, our, in our communities that's something that they want. So you might have to do a hybrid model on two different ends, local, in-person and virtual, but also introducing a four instead of a five-day work week. So all of that is going to require trust, commitment, and definitely compassion. We're going to have to give each other a lot of grace as we work towards what's possible and as we continue to evolve. And having a fundamental idea what you believe about people is going to govern all of it. If you feel like people are really trying to get over on you or just get over on each other, then you don't have what it takes to build a strong virtual culture. You really have to trust people. I wrote an email series. I have a newsletter that I publish five days a week. And there was a recent article that I wrote about talking about the trust factor of remote workers, how I feel at least you should be measuring their production value, their output, Mm -hmm. not their input. I mean, if they spend eight hours in front of a keyboard or four hours in front of a keyboard, as long as they're producing what you need them to produce, I believe that it you should allow that employee to decide when and how to work as long as they're keeping their commitments. Mm-hmm. And there are some employees that the employees that take that to their advantage and they stack jobs. They actually have multiple yep. jobs as a result yep. of it. I'm curious to know your opinion in terms of from the leadership side of things. I know that there's more and more companies that are trying to convince their employees to come back to the workplace so that they have that visibility and a sense of control. But what would be your opinion on, on if you were to guide a leader you know, between those two scenarios? The, the worry that they might stack jobs, but still, I mean, I'm talking about a hypothetical situation where they're still producing what they need to produce, not one that's slacking off and just trying to right. milk the system. But you know, genuine people who are just better at managing their time, they're able to, to manage either, whether it's another project or another uh, you know, side project or a home project or spending more time with the kids even, or another job versus the, the, the pull to, I have to go back to the office because my boss is telling me because he wants me to look down my, you know, over my shoulder. What would be your mm. advice for leaders in that kind of world? It's interesting that you bring that up because I was recently in a conversation um, with some other business leaders and this idea came up and I thought it was, I didn't comment on it because I, I just thought it was quite interesting uh, because of the difference, the differing power dynamics. Like the, I was talking to somebody else the other day and they said that, you know, COVID-19 was kind of like the blip <laughs> in, in, uh, in Infinity War. Like, like what was life like before the blip? What was life like after the blip? And life changed. So when the, the pandemic hit, it was so disruptive that it changed the power structure between employee and employer. And I don't know if many of the people I was in that conversation with 
really understand some of the challenges of that dynamic. Think about it like this, Alex. A business owner is going to want to scale. They're going to want as much profitability as possible. So they're going to want to produce at low expense for the highest yield, right? And if they can stack services that seem to be profitable, they're going to do that. Virtual employees are in many instances learning what they bring to the market has such value that if they can do it in less time, they have an opportunity to create more revenue and profitability for themselves. And if if CEOs and others can structure their businesses to do that, then an employee in this day and age sees themselves as their own business and they're leveraging that type of entrepreneurism themselves. Here's how I would kind of coach a leader. One, for the product or service that you offer, does it require that type of employee loyalty for you to maintain profitability and the viability of your culture? That's unique. That's idiosyncratic. Does this particular product or service require that? Then you drill down a little bit more for the role that this person plays. Are they getting access to proprietary information that could be leveraged somewhere else? Do they need to be loyal to us so that we know that we're not sharing our intellectual property or marketplace uh, a competitive advantage with others? Then, then ask those questions. But if it's you know, something that is not grounded in something a little bit more objective, then I don't, I don't think leaders have a ground to stand on because we can't control human beings. We can't control human behavior. We can put people in places where they can flourish, but we can't control them. Yeah, I, I agree. Any other thoughts about trying to manage remote workers effectively? So you mentioned trust, the commitment to the culture, the, 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 the trust culture, the commitment, the uh, compassion. Any other elements that you could add or factors you could think are important to be able to keep that remote worker uh, enthused, motivated, connected, even though they are remote? Remembering that human beings are human beings. They're going to bring something to the table at work that is beyond their ability to produce. And we as organizations, businesses can offer something more than just money as an exchange for their productivity. Human beings need community. And the, the business that learns how to scratch the itch of the human soul for community at work will never have to worry about talent. And so if we can find ways and become culturally innovative in our local organization as to how is it that we can provide community for our virtual team, we're winning. We're winning because there are not too many platforms that we have available at our disposal right now that are digital and and as good as they are at being digital are also as good at creating community. That is going to take something a little bit extra. And that's what leaders do. Leaders leaders give a little bit extra. And so if we can find ways to create community virtually, we, we will never have to worry about uh, talent and the world will just be a better place. So how do you build community? <laughs> at least if you can give a, a one, maybe two examples or, or ideas food for thought, just to get one level deeper, because I totally agree. Uh, actually, I, I was thinking about that word even before you said it, 
because that is the glue that binds people together. And even as a remote worker, it it can be lonely sometimes. You, you do mm-hmm. I do feel a bit disconnected myself. And this community is something that I used to have when I was working on site. I don't have so much anymore. And I, I do find it in other ways by going to co-working spaces and cafes and so forth to get that kind of sense. Of course, it's not with the same uh, people or same level of engagement, but there's just a sense of community there that everyone there is doing you know, similar type of work. So mm-hmm. if you could give like a, a one level deeper of, you know, what does that mean to build a community or how, what does that look like in that remote digital space? So one way to create community is to remove, um, and this might, I don't want to do it with a negative, but to remove, I'm going to call it in this case, a villain, the villain of anonymity. You remember Cheers? Everybody, oh, yeah, want, everybody uh, I want to go somewhere where everybody knows my name. So when I bring me to work, knowing that I'm known there, right? Not just my name, but, you know, somebody reaches out to me and remind, uh, tells me happy birthday. I don't have to tell them it's my birthday. Um, little subtle things that build relationship. You build relationship and based upon those relationships, you can build community. Then if there are other like intentional things that can be done that may require someone to travel, uh, how can we foster an environment where we may have a virtual coffee shop or a virtual happy hour, so to speak, where we can put virtual celebrations, where we can engage each other socially, but not necessarily at the cost of our productivity, but seeing that sometimes interacting socially may increase our, our productivity and be willing to pay a price. We do have airplanes. We, we do have ways of travel. Maybe there are ways where we can have team meetups if it's once a quarter um, or being strategic about professional development, where if we're going to have professional development, then we'll all be together at this conference. And there are other ways in which we can build teams and get to know each other there. For the first point, removing anonymity, uh, I would also say the flip side is showing, awarding talent and rewarding talent in the sense of recognizing people who have done fantastic work mm-hmm. and sharing that with the company, saying, Look, this week we're acknowledging Anthony for his astounding contribution towards X. Uh, you know, thank you very much. Maybe a gift card doesn't really matter. But the idea is that the, it's the actual recognition, even within the company itself, right. I think is also a very strong motivator mm-hmm. and um, way to remove this sense of anonymity, if I can pronounce right. that word correctly. And and what you noted is that would be good if I was working in a physical building. Oh, yeah. Right. So, so what was really going on, I, what could be going on, let me not say what's really going on. What could be going on is the things that we think we're missing when we go virtual or hybrid, we assume we have it in the physical space. When the reality could be, maybe we're not as intentional about building community, even when we are going to the office. And we are kind of uh, denigrating the virtual space because we, we, we are really thinking about productivity. We're not really thinking about community. Because what you've alluded to, that would be good if you were at work at a bank and you had to go to the bank every morning, being recognized for your talent, that's just good anywhere. And being virtual may give us an opportunity to be more intentional about that and doing it in both spaces. Taking the remote worker perspective to an extreme, something that I am is a digital nomad. 
So I'm working part uh, six months of the year in Canada, six months of the year in Spain. And I'm curious to know, are there any additional factors that leaders would need to consider if some of their employees, there's a remote worker and then there's digital nomads. I consider them to be a bit different because to me, mm -hmm. remote worker is more, I'm at home. I don't want to come to the office, even though the office might be across the city. It could be on the other side of the country, but I'm thinking more locally versus a digital nomad, which means I can be anywhere on the planet Mm -hmm. As long as I'm attending the meetings I need to attend to and again, productivity. Do you see any differences in leadership styles or leadership, I guess, in anything we've mentioned in, in the conversation so far that would be different for a digital nomad versus a remote employee or a hybrid employee? Yeah. If you're in Canada and then Spain, let's just, we'll just use you as an example. You sure. might want to consider the time zone difference. You might want to consider what kind of disruptions can happen that are beyond your control because of your travel, right? Like the leader, I can't control whether or not you get through customs in a country. I can't control the, the geopolitical relations between Canada and Spain. If that gets tight, then we may have some different challenges in regards to your ability to produce. So there can be some infrastructure differences What's the broadband in both of these countries? You could travel to a remote country that doesn't have as stable an internet, those things. And uh, then we have to take you into the, the employee into account as to whether or not their level of production is worth all of the cost of these possible disruptions. Uh, and that's a little, that's a little bit different. That's a little bit different. But would you say the, the responsibility is more on the employee side or the, the person who is the digital nomad to make sure that they do get through customs, that they do have enough sufficient bandwidth to be able to do work. And it's part of your professionalism. You need to make sure that you are diligent in these, in these regards for things mm -hmm. you can control. And if they are not up to par, then you have to mitigate them in some way, whether you change locations or whatnot. I don't, what, is it just a matter of understanding on the part of the leader in that regard? Or is it a matter of saying, look, this is not working for me because your productivity is, is going down, Mr. Employee, and therefore I need you to change it and then you know, provide that kind of direction? So uh, I think the tools we have uh, uh, remain the same. They may just be applied a little bit differently. Those uh, challenges could be challenges found in an in-person employee who is having trouble showing up on time every day because right. They can't seem to get down the interstate without a flat tire or they're running out of gas. When those things become a trend, then that's a different conversation. And so you have conversations about what seems to be a trend. If they're one off, you, you, you give grace to that. I hope you get through customs okay. I hope you get to work okay. I hope things are fine. When it becomes a trend, then a leader has different tools in their tools box or different measures that they can take depending upon what their HR uh, representative provides in regards to solutions to implement, to really protect and promote that employee's flourishing. This type of professionalism and behavior may not be conducive to you flourishing as an employee here. And then I also have a responsibility to protect and promote the flourishing of the organization. Uh, so it's the same tools but it really just requires the disposition of the leader to be a good disposition for a leader to think what's best of the employee and want what's best for the employee. 
Shifting gears toward the last bit of our conversation, I'm always curious to know, because of the rise of AI, especially recently with ChatGPT, mm. what, how has AI impacted the leadership in a tech world for nonprofits? Is, is it a significant impact? Is it a, it's coming and therefore we should get ready for it? Is it already here? Because it can be overwhelming. There's a lot that's going on. I had a guest on a few weeks ago talking about AI and responsible AI for nonprofits. Like the, the every week, right? There are dozens of new types of AI that are appearing, maybe more. So it's hard to keep track of everything. But I'm just curious to know, in the context of a leadership scenario, um, what should a leader pay attention to or disregard when it comes to AI? Well, I, that's an excellent question. You talked about systems of reward and recognition, right? So let's say you got uh, a grant writing team that's leveraging AI to write grants right? And they've been pretty successful at it. Who gets credit for that? Well, I you, would still say it's because I would just jump in and answer your question. I, I see it as the person is still doing the work. They're using different tools and they're using more advanced tools. But at this, in this context, the AI is just another type of tool. It's like almost like an autocomplete on steroids. Mm-hmm. So let's as you said, take it to the extreme. Let's amateurize the success over a course of a decade, right? And they've had success with this particular, this particular uh, AI tool in getting grants. And not, now those grants for that organization may become something that after a period of time seems to be automatic. Then an update comes to the AI, and the update to the AI significantly hampers the success of future grants being granted to this organization. Who takes the fall for that? Who are we going to hold accountable? When it comes to success, I think we'll be fine. But when, when it comes to who do we hold accountable for outcomes, I think that's really where it gets to be a little bit challenging. Not in the short term, but maybe in the long term, if we learn to lean heavily on those technological devices. I, I, give you, I give you an example. You say you like Marvel, I like Marvel too. So you remember Age of Ultron, Iron Man, brilliant. Bruce Banner, brilliant. They, they come up with this, they, they crack the mind stone and find that there's some artificial intelligence in there, right? And they try to leverage this artificial intelligence to do what? Build armor around the world. So while they're building armor around the world, it goes wrong. They couldn't account for it. Something happened. And Ultron was AI gone wrong. And you remember this conversation in uh, (laughs) uh, Iron Man's house about whose fault it was. And Bruce Banner is definitely obfuscating. He's like, well, I I helped, but (laughs) but but it wasn't me. So when it goes wrong, it's nobody's problem. And then this is the thing that got me, Alex. This is the thing that really, really got me. Ultron becomes a problem. And the solution to Ultron was another AI with Jarvis's voice, but they called him Vision. So in the overall narrative, Vision's character is a reaction to a problem that AI created. And what if we're moving towards a day where a lot of people are going to have Vision to correct a problem that was created by artificial intelligence? Hmm. I need to digest that one, but I can definitely talk about the previous question you asked in the sense of when things go wrong, I would still put it in that context in your example 
on the grant writer because it's the grant writer using the tool for better or for worse. They're the ones that still are responsible for the, not maybe not the acceptance of the grant because they don't have much control, but the quality of the grant application, whether it's a, a whether they use AI or not, if they write a good proposal or a bad proposal with or without AI, they're responsible for their work. The AI is just helping them achieve something and it might help them more or less in that regard. So that's an easier question for me to answer. The second one, though, I'll have to, I'll have to get back to you on that one. That's <laughs> no interesting. problem. Having, but I love, and I love the, and I didn't even think about it until you mentioned it and, and emphasize it. It's the fact that his name is Vision, that Vision saved AI, which, like, does that mean that that's what we, is that a solution to AI is having more vision? <laughs> right. <laughs> or is right. it just, because I know it's the name of the comic book character too. So that's interesting. I have to, you gave me something to think about. Yeah, and I'm, the AI conversation can can lead to a lot of possibilities. And even in the case that we're talking about with the grant writer, is not does the leader hold the grant writer responsible, but who, who does the grant writer hold responsible? For themselves, hopefully. That's what we think, but humans evolve. Humans are complicated and complex. And so if a dependence on certain technology goes wrong or or, or is developed and then that technology goes wrong to whom will the person using the tool hold accountable? You're saying basically the the dog ate my homework. I mean, (laughs) this is the classic excuse. Yep. Yep. And in our moral construct, we, we laugh at that possibility, but as the world continues to advance, there may be opportunities where people blame the robots and not themselves. That we don't like hold can... ourselves responsible like we used to. Mm, okay. Yep. Immediately, it may not seem that way. But as I'm just talking about the possibility, as, as we move forward, it may, not be, it may not be the same way. I get what you're saying. I'm trying to think of another example. I was thinking of like electricity. There's no electricity. We can't work versus in the mm-hmm. past. We could. There's something there, but I'll thank you for sharing that. I'll have to mull that one over a bit further. Other things about the future. So besides AI, anything you can see coming, trends happening uh, in terms of leadership in a tech world, anything that you see in the horizon or would like to see in the horizon, let's say in the near, near future, say three to five years-ish. Three to five years. Wow. That's the that very near future. Yeah, that's that. No, that's the very near future. And in the very near future, I th- there's a lot of gray space. There are a lot of what ifs. Um, and so continuing to manage what is proving to be some of the dilemmas of, of, of the 21st century, um, loneliness and anxiety, because nothing is like we're talking about AI. When it's it's not necessarily in the beginning stages, but it's not as pervasive and as um, accessible as it will be in the future, and so there's still a lot of what ifs about it. Kind of like when we were asking as kids watching the Jetsons, what is it going to be? What if what if cars can fly? Like, and then thinking about it, like what happens to the DMV then, and how do you train people to drive? Like, will we be trained to drive at that point, or will we all be pilots? So all of those what if questions can be asked, and those what if questions are not being asked in private spaces alone. Those questions are being asked in public spaces because we've got access to so much information via social media 
and the World Wide Web. So how do we prepare ourselves to alleviate those anxieties and to alleviate the requisite loneliness that people may feel on the planet? And I think those two things are really going to influence leadership in the future, that not just providing a context for people to be productive, but also providing a context, and this is happening now, for people to live their quote-unquote best life, to find meaning in their work and not just money, and also and also community. Have you seen the movie Her? No, I have not. I highly recommend it. Because okay. in it was um, a world where people had a personal AI that got to know them, their likes, their dislikes. So in addition to asking whatever question you want to ask, it was this individual, I forget the, um, you know, Clean Phoenix, uh, had a relationship with his AI. He, he almost fell in love, or he did fall in love. It's been a while since I've seen it. But he definitely mm. was emotionally intimate with the AI. And that was basically one way, or is one way, potentially, to solve the loneliness factor. Hmm. But if the AI rejects him, who does he blame for his hurt? Oh, actually, that, that's, that's <laughs> I won't give away the ending. But there might be a there might be a tinge of that toward the end of the. Oh wow! Movie. So okay, I gotta watch it. I gotta watch check it. Check it out. Yeah. Okay. Awesome, Anthony. This has been great. I know we could talk for a lot longer, but we gotta respect certain timelines and deadlines and cool. your your time, of course. So I want to thank you very much. I want to know, of course, or can you please share rather? Uh, how can people get in touch with you? Learn more about you. Follow up questions and all that good stuff. Alex, thank you so much for an engaging conversation and giving me a little bit of permission to do a little bit of nerding out as we talk about her and Age of Ultron and Vision and a host of other things, leadership. Um, thanks again for an engaging conversation. If people would like to get in contact with me, they can find me on LinkedIn at uh, linkedin.com backslash Jr. That's A-A-D-I-C-K-S-J-R. And uh, that's the best way to get in contact with me. You can message me there. And we can begin to develop a little bit more community. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. That's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.